Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors. To out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is August 12, 2020, and you're listening to Episode 13. Today, we speak with David Blackmore, Global Master Brand Ambassador for the Glen Morangi Company and Ardbeg Distillery. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. During World War II, despite a raging battle in the Atlantic, exports were still making their way across the ocean from Europe to America, as well as to other destinations across the globe. On February 3, 1941, the SS Politician, an 80,000-ton cargo ship, departed the port of Liverpool carrying goods to New Orleans and Jamaica, only to run aground on February 5th in a storm off the Scottish Isle of Eriskay in the Outer Hebrides. The islanders set out in a sailing boat to help rescue the crew since the lifeboat sent from Barra was given the incorrect location. In assisting the shipwreck crew, the locals learned that the main cargo was some 260,000 bottles of whiskey. And since their island supply of whiskey had run dry due to the wartime rationing, the discovery excited them greatly. Soon thereafter, a series of illicit salvage operations were launched to rescue the whiskey before the weather completely broke up the ship. Even though the locals believed they were saving the whiskey, they avoided authorities because no duties had yet been paid on the shipment. Villages were raided and bottles were scattered and hidden across the island as authorities hunted down the locals responsible for pillaging the politician. It's estimated the Ariscaeans had salvaged some 24,000 bottles. On April 26, 1941, a group of men pled guilty to the theft, but were charged modest fines between three and five pounds sterling. The light judgment infuriated Customs Officer Charles McColl, who'd made the official complaint of the theft to the police. McColl continued his crusade against the Scotch salvages. Due to his efforts, eventually some offenders were sent to Inverness and Peterhead to serve a six-week sentence. Since that time, yet more bottles of whiskey have been recovered by divers and sold at auction. The now infamous shipwreck and its story were the basis of the 1947 book Whiskey Galore by Compton McKenzie, adapted for the screen in 1949 by London's Ealing Studios. The 2016 remake starred Eddie Izzard. Diver Donald McPhee explored the wreck in 1987, recovering eight bottles and later selling them at auction for a total of 4,000 pounds. In 2013, a pair of whiskey bottles from the ship sold at auction for 12,050 pounds. Today, a bottle discovered by sea repairman George Curry in the 1980s is currently up for auction. Curry and his team recovered Bat 69, Valentine's, and four bottles of Gibby, a now-defunct brand, from the wreck. Currently, at the time of this recording, the highest bid for the collection, which includes Mr. Curry's diving helmet, bricks from the ship, as well as a promotional poster from the 2016 remake of the film, was at $7,869. In honor of this historic Scotch whiskey event, we invited David Blackmore on the show today. David represents several Scotch brands that were around during the time of the SS Politician's shipwreck. Stay with us. Team Whiskey is the original brand for outdoor sports and whiskey enthusiasts who hosts events and sells apparel to help raise money for cancer support groups. Team Whiskey hats are unique and one-of-a-kind, custom-built, and features outdoor and whiskey-related artwork on the underbill. T-shirts are made from a quality and comfortable 60-40 cotton blend that are pre-shrunk. 
A portion of every purchase and event ticket sold is donated to cancer support groups. To learn more about Team Whiskey, their products, programs, upcoming fundraising events, and how you can help support a cancer support group, visit www.team-whiskey.com. That's www.team-whiskey.com. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, our special guest is Mr. David Blackmore. David is global ambassador for Glenmorangie and Ardbeg single malt Scotch whiskies. So welcome, David. Thank you. It's great to be here for the Good to have you with us. Yes, I'm very excited. We've only had one scotch so far, which breaks my heart because I'm a huge scotch lover. And we just keep doing all these beautiful American whiskeys. <laughs> well, to be fair, to be fair, that guest, that scotch was represented by Simon Brooking, whom you know well. Simon is an awesome, awesome fellow. Love him to pieces. I think Simon represents at least six single malts perhaps i can never keep track anymore (laughs) he's but he's known whenever you think simon you think lefroig that's for sure indeed indeed we bring up him as well because you were mentioned in his whiskey journey so we always like to start out with what was your whiskey journey and how did you get from you know being a kid uh growing up in scotland i'm assuming to uh now you represent you know glenmorangie and ardbeg how did that all come to be it's a it's a great question, you know. And I, I I was born and raised in Edinburgh, so you'd assume, you know, that I I was almost sort of born with a bottle of whiskey in my hands, and nothing could be further from my from the truth. Neither of my parents really were whiskey drinkers. I remember getting to the age of going off to university and still not really liking Scotch whiskey. I went to my first whiskey tasting whilst at St Andrews University. And to be honest, it didn't really click much with me. And I thought, oof, uh, this is a bit. This may be not me, not not really be my thing. However, my dad was a really keen wine drinker, and you know, got me into uh, loving wine, particularly red European red wine. And I think that maybe was a good sort of background that, that set me up. But it didn't uh, it didn't happen for me. Scotch whiskey love didn't happen until I was about twenty three or twenty four, and I was working for an events management company. Uh, out in Linlithgow, so halfway between Edinburgh and Glasgow. And my boss at the time, a Canadian gentleman, um, uh, you know, a lot of the events we put on were whiskey related. You know, people were having conferences, American companies coming in for a conference in Scotland. What's, what's the sort of thing they want to do uh, on, their le- on their leisure days or their evenings? Well, a Scotch whiskey tasting would be one of them. So I would be organizing those sorts of things and then sitting in the back of the room, frankly, with a clipboard, making sure everything was going okay. And I would be listening to the, the, whoever we'd hired as the whiskey expert. Um, leading the leading the tasting, so I started to sort of really appreciate uh, the nuances of Scotch whiskey. I still hadn't really got a taste for it, but then one day, well, it must have been a quiet day, uh, my boss sat me down and tasted me on a couple of whiskies he had in the office, and I started to get it, and um, it kind of led from there, really. But actually, I think I even hired the illustrious Charlie McLean on, on a couple of occasions oh, wow. to give tastings. So you know, to start your whiskey career off or your your whiskey journey off by sitting in a room listening to Charlie McLean. Not a bad start. Yeah, really. pretty good. <laughs> and then, yeah, I mean, a couple of drams uh, that, that my boss at the time just poured and it was, uh, I'm trying to remember, that was the one that really clicked, that turned the light on, the light bulb on, 
was was Mortlich. Mortlich, sixteen year old from Diageo's old Flora and Fauna range, um, heavily sherried, big, meaty, intense whiskey. And it's funny people say, "Oh, start off with the light whiskies." That's often the case for people's journeys. But I know people, including my wife, whose first whiskey that really they really got was Ardbeg. My wife, you know. How how do you start at Ardbeg? I don't know. <laughs> but, but people do. I started with Sherry Bomb. Right, right. Absolutely. So, yeah, it all started there. And, and very quickly after that, I realized that I hadn't really known what I wanted to do with my life and what career I was going into. I bounced around various things. And having joined the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society as a as an avid kind of member wanting to learn, I then decided that that was a great place to maybe work. So I... Uh, I managed to get in and, and at the very, very bottom rung, I, I worked at part-time shifts as a bartender uh, at the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. And even for the first few months, I was cleaning dishes to add add some more shifts in the kitchen at the society. So you don't start in the Scotch industry much much lower than the pot washer. <laughs> that was me. You could start there as the go. pot still washer. The pot still washer. There you go. Very good. Da- I love dad jokes. <laughs> Remind me of my sister. She's made a career change and now she's she's into coffee as much as I'm into whiskey. And so oh, awesome. she wanted to go get a job working at this cafe because they roasted their own beans. And then she ended up being the glorified dishwasher. And after three weeks, she said, um, yeah. This is not why I came to work here. <laughs> she's like, I'm out. And now she's building her own her own company and roasting her own stuff. So good for her. Oh, great. Well, you need to you two need to combine your passions by getting getting a hold of a bottle of Glenmorangie Signet. Our yes. chocolate malted Glenmorangie. Yes. A, a coffee bottle. I was talking mm. to Philip about that bottle. I said, I wonder if we should get this bottle because a local bar here has it on sale because they're liquidating. Mm. And oh. I thought, mm, that might be fun to taste, but it was still a little bit too expensive for me. Well, darn. Now, I'm, I am I know a guy who might be able to sort that out for you guys. <laughs> Let's do what we can do. Let's do what we can do. But last summer, actually, I was back in Scotland. One of the things I was back for was what we call Signet Week. And it's the kind of two weeks a year when we use the chocolate malted barley through the whole distillery. And the place smells like a coffee shop. It's just amazing. Wow. So we took some people, took some writers to, to Scotland, some whiskey geeks to Scotland to show them the process. And then at Glenmorangie House, uh, we have this country house hotel just by the distillery. We actually had um, a young lady who is a coffee expert from a a, a coffee roaster in London come up and take us through the whole kind of nuances of roasting coffee, which was all new to me. So I, I yeah. get it. It's amazing. Really, yeah, it is really amazing. Cool. She was, yeah. I visited her recently and she was telling me about all these different things and she's getting certified and her new roaster. And she's like, and then there's cuppings and there's this and there's yes. that. And I'm like, oh my God, it's like, it might even be a little bit more complicated than, than whiskey tasting. <laughs> Seriously, it's uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, and I was amazed by this this home roasting uh, bean roaster that this uh, this uh, lady had, uh, and it was all high tech, and she could control it from her phone, which oh, wow. was pretty amazing. Yeah, so that, that was kind of my journey. David, before we get too far into your career, I'd like to sure. go back to your, your work at St. Andrews and what you studied. Are you not formerly a professional actor? I am absolutely not a professional actor <laughs> in the past, and I think that's I hope that, uh, you know, my background, what I 
maybe miss in terms of professionally honed presentation skills I gain in other ways. So my degree at St. Andrews was a science degree, which helps a lot in whiskey. It was oh, yeah, in, in, a, in a marine environmental biology. But I started off, you know, with modules in chemistry and geology. My father's a chemist. We can expect the algae edition of Glenmorangie any any year no. now. Do you go to the beach and drink with the dolphins? <laughs> well, it's interesting because I haven't been involved in this program much because I'm, you know, based in the States. But we've had a program with um, the Marine Conservation Trust in the UK to clean up the Dornoch Firth, the estuary, the river by wow. Glenmorangie Distillery. And we've been working on this program to, to reintroduce native oysters to the Dornoch wow. Firth. So it's actually perfect. I suddenly see my company doing something you know, really beneficial in the field that I was actually uh, at university for. That's really cool. That's kind of cool. That's something. Yeah. yeah, full circle. Yeah. So yeah, the, between the society and Glenmorangie, I guess it was because I'd been with the society for a while and then um, they were purchased. Certainly the, the main branch in the UK was purchased by Glenmorangie Company. They no longer own it now, I must add. They sold it again. But uh, during that period of time, I well, almost immediately after the purchase, I was in London and I met the illustrious Dr. Bill Lumsden, our, our head of mm-hmm. Whiskey wow. Crew at Whiskey Live London. And I had already kind of decided that I wanted to get out of London, at least for a while, and get to the States. So I I, bug, I got his business card and I bugged him, I really bugged him. I called him one week <laughs> and I emailed him the next for a solid year saying, I want a job as an ambassador. <laughs> what year was this that you were bothering this poor gentleman? <laughs> About 2004, okay. through most of 2004. And then 2005, he finally said, right, listen, come back up to Edinburgh and interview. He pretty much said, it's your job not to screw the interview up. <laughs> So, and then he sent me to the States. Nice. Here I am all these years later. Um, the, the travel and the late nights and everything can are not so much fun. I know that sounds ridiculous, but try it at some point. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's, the less, that's the least fun. It's it. Not, it, can be, it can be night after night after night, 18-hour yeah. days. Uh, that, yeah. uh, that takes its toll. Now, that said, you've been named Scotch Whiskey Ambassador of the Year three times uh-huh. that's pretty amazing that there's some stiff competition there 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 is i just wrote bigger checks no no i'm joking <laughs> <laughs> well tell us about that honor i mean clearly your cv suggests that you're committed not just to the brands you represent but to whiskey i love it yeah tell us tell us what that honor means to you it means everything i i decided from a young age i didn't know what i wanted to do but i did know Whatever I got into, I wanted it to be more than just a nine-to-five job. I wanted it to be my life, which is very opposite to a lot of people's ideas. You know, they want to segment home life from work life and have a balance. I thought that the balance should be finding almost a vocation. And that's how I've always thought of this career. So, yeah. And starting at the Whiskey Society, being kind of um, responsible for presenting at the time about 120 different distilleries products potentially, but with no branding behind it at all, I think was a great entry into Scotch whiskey and appreciating that every distillery out there produces great whiskey. There may be some distilleries that you prefer over others. There may be some that have more home runs than others, but you can find a great whiskey from everywhere. Everybody should be proud of their products and every brand ambassador for certain. If you're not proud of the brand you're working for, then you should go find another one to work for. Right. Mm. <laughs> but uh, no, it's been, it's been fantastic to be able to have that camaraderie with 
fellow fellow whiskey ambassadors who share a passion for my products and for me to share a passion for their products and going to you know for example going to isla for for our big business it's tough to say that isn't it but um, <laughs> uh, you know i'm not if, if, unless unless the time crunch is absolutely um, critical i will be doing my damnedest to get around you know lagavulin and lafroig at least even though i've been around the distilleries a, a bazillion times you know, if I'm right next door, I still want to go see see them, say hi, see what they've got in the, in the gift of shop, course. take a peek at the stills, if nothing else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. David, you have been on our short list of guests for a few months now, and there was a recent development in the news that yeah. bumped you up the list. <laughs> and speaking of matters marine, the Whiskey yeah. Galore ship and its liquid cargo. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't seen the film Whiskey Galore, uh, and then the remake more recently as well of it, it's worth worth watching if you're into whiskey at all. And uh, yeah, so the SS politician was was heading off with a cargo hold loaded full of Scotch whiskey and other things, including a bunch of money, I, I, I believe, and um, ran into a massive storm and ran aground off the west coast and on the western isles of Scotland. And there's all sorts of stories of bottles being sort of hidden all over the island. And then the one that gets me is I heard the story that all the bottles that the authorities could get their hands on, so the rumor has it that they got a local road tarmac crew in and they laid laid the bottles down and they put tarmac over the top of them and steamrolled into the road. So if you're driving around the island, you're probably driving over many, many, many bottles of Scotch whiskey. <laughs> that is so sad. <laughs> Crazy. Sad. Terry and I were talking uh, last week about this, and we wanted someone who represents brand or brands that had been that were around at the time, and certainly sure. the, who you represent very much were Glen Morangy and Ardbeg, 1843 and 1815, respectively. Indeed. Yeah, we yeah. were certainly around. I don't know if we were on the boat. Probably not, if I'm honest. But, you know, you could say we were on the boat. Just to, <laughs> It's just a, a crazy part of, of Scotch whiskey history. You know, there's so many amazing stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. And I'm, I'm desperate to get back to Scotland. You know, I was supposed to be at the Isla Festival along with Simon and everyone sure. this year. And, of course, we know what happened there. So. Yeah, indeed. Well, so can you talk to us a bit? Give us the overview, the quick and dirty history of these two storied brands. Sure. Well, maybe actually I'll start with Glenmorangie, even though it's the younger of the two distilleries. You know, um, foundation date, as we've got on the label, says 1843. Um, however, um, there's there's a lot of evidence and records to show that alcohol production of some sort was happening at the Glenmorangie site way back as early as the 1730s. Yeah. And back then it was it was a legitimate farm brewery and most likely with some illicit distilling going on on the side. Right. An agricultural product. Indeed, absolutely. And um, I think the reason that Glenmorangie Brewery became pretty renowned and its beer was being exported as far south as Edinburgh, which you know back in those days was, was something, sure. is, is, this, is part of the same reason that we are who we are today. We've got this unusually mineral-rich source of spring water um, f- at Glenmorangie, the Tarlogi Spring, and that's what the brewer breweries would have been using as well. And if you're into your beers, you'll know that you know Burton upon Trent in England is kind of mecca for beer nerds, and 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 brewers around the world try to Burtonize their water to replicate that style. So Tarlogi spring water is 
chemically very similar to that Burton upon Trent yeah. water makes great beer, creates a more fruity style of beer, a more vigorous fermentation. So that's probably why Glamorangie uh, is where it is. We got going legally in 1843 uh, with a license to distill. Woohoo! Amazing. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> only took us a hundred and something years. Um, uh, and William Matheson, who worked at the nearby Balblair distillery. Uh, for over 20 years, took out the license. So he was our founding father. Uh, sadly passed away a few years after that. And Mrs. Matheson actually ran the distillery for many, many years, uh, the brains of the operation. And she brought in the Maitland brothers in 1887, and they refurbished the distillery. And those were the, uh, those were the guys that brought in, from their knowledge of running gin distilleries in London, they brought in these incredible tall stills, to this day, the tallest stills in Scotland, which create huge amounts of reflux during distillation, lots of copper contact, which cleans the spirit up and makes a very elegant, fragrant, floral spirit at Glenmorangie and really sets the tone. That is a hallmark characteristic of the whiskey, yes. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it's those those guys, the, the Maitland brothers in 1887, not only did they put the tall stills in with real foresight, but they put it. They, they actually uh, installed one of the first ever systems of steam coiled heating uh, for the stills, rather than direct fired, which also gives you a lot more, leaves a lot more copper contact. So they were pretty certain. You know, we don't, we can't interview them, but I'm pretty certain that they knew exactly what they were doing. They were aiming for a particular style that didn't really exist in Scotland uh, till that point. Speaking of men whom we cannot interview. Aside from serving as the title of an album by Alan Holdsworth, who's absolutely one of my favorite guitarists, one of the greatest of all time, who are the 16 men of Tame? <laughs> so, yeah, we've historically, up until recently, always had a, a workforce of, of 16 craftsmen running the distillery um, as much as possible by hand. However, 2009, we added 50% capacity to the distillery with four new stills. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the kind of obvious thing would be to say, oh, well, 16 men attain. We've got to retain the, the, the hands-on approach and the old way of doing things with 16 people. But actually, you couldn't. There wasn't a big enough workforce. So is it the 24 men of 10? So, so we're, we're actually um, unofficially about 28 or 29 men of 10 these days um, because the only way to have kept 16 would have been to automate half the distillery way beyond where we wanted to. So we didn't do that. We instead hired more people and trained them up and created more craftsmen and women. So that's uh, probably a good thing, really. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's about 28, 29 men and women of team at, at Glenmorangie now. And at the Ardbeg story comes in for in terms of the Glenmorangie company only in uh, 1997 when oh, wow. Ardbeg, you know, is an older distillery, 1815, it had been, uh, it had been it bounced around so many owners in, it, in its history. And when it came to the 70s, 1970s, it was going great. You know, it, it was... Just like its cousin uh, next door, Lefroig, mm -hmm. it was producing smoky whiskey, the large lion's share going into blends, which was what everyone was drinking in the 70s. 80s come around, and for whatever reason, people stopped drinking whiskey, uh, both sides of the Atlantic, and they sure as hell stopped drinking blended scotch. And, you know, from 80, 81 
through the 80s is just a terribly sad time for the Scotch whiskey industry with distilleries closing left and right. And Ardbeg closed in 81 and didn't distill a drop again until 89. And distilled quite a bit in 1990, but largely for contracts for blenders. Kind of limped along from 91 to 96. And then the, the, the owners at the time put it up for sale. They owned Lafroig next door. They didn't need two distilleries that were producing for the, certainly the purposes of blending relatively similar spirits. I wouldn't say they were similar in terms of you know, in, uh, enjoying them as single malts, but certainly for a blender, they were doing roughly the same thing. So they decided to, to put Ardbeg up for sale as a last-ditch attempt before possibly dem, uh, you know, demolition. Uh, luckily, the Glenmorangie Company came in. We were... We had a long history of, of running distilleries. We had a lot of blended brands at the time as well. And we bid for Ardbeg and uh, yeah, we were successful. So yeah. that was the night that was ninety seven and the, the place was in dire need of repair. And we've spent funny enough, we've spent many, many times more than it cost us to purchase the distillery, wow. fixing the distillery. <laughs> wow. I will say this, how the, the, the logo, the Ardbeg logo is among my favorite mm. in the industry. How far back does this logo, there's this graphic, a graphic art code, do you know? So to be honest, most of what you see, the bottle shape that you see now and the way that it's all put together dates from about 97 okay. with a bunch of work done by a gentleman who still works for us, Hamish Torrey. Mm-hmm who is largely responsible, along with a couple of agencies that he employs, to, with getting the current look and feel of Ardbeg, which is, looks like it just kind of appeared with the creation of Earth to me. You know? It looks like yeah. it's, it, there was never a time when there wasn't the Ardbeg logo in the Ardbeg bottle. Okay. But right. um, the A itself is taken from the Book of Kells, so okay. it is uh, much, much, much older. And the, and the Celtic knotwork that you see on the edge of the label and round the, the cork and such like mm-hmm. is taken from the Kildalton Cross, which sits in Kildalton Kirk okay. in the in the graveyard there. So there's lots of, you know, the whole thing about Ardbeg is being absolutely rooted in Isla, but with a kind of an irreverent side to it. We always say we take the process of making our whiskies deadly seriously. We don't take ourselves very seriously <laughs> at all. You know, which is quite often almost the opposite of some other whiskey brands, you know? Indeed. <laughs> A note to our listeners, you'll be able to see this artwork uh, on our website uh, once this episode is posted. Yes. Awesome. So what about the lines? How extensive are the Glenmorangie and Ardbeg brands' lines? Yeah, we've got a pretty uh, exciting and ever-changing lineup for both distilleries of a core kind of um, setup of, of products that are tried and tested and people love. And we, 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 we kind of evolve those. We change them from time to time. But we have a lot of limited releases, particularly from Ardbeg. Keep the excitement up, you know. And, you know, some people might criticize us for that. But frankly, you know, what what's the point if it's not, you know, always new things? And you might not like them all. That's fine. Hopefully you like most of them. <laughs> you know, we're always trying to produce new and interesting flavors, that's for sure. Well, you, you do a good job of it, both brands sure. do, I think. Thank you. What I love about Ardbeg and Glamorangie is that they are pretty much the kind of bookends of the flavor spectrum of the entire Scotch landscape. 
you know, yeah. everything else kind of resides somewhere in between. You can get two more different single malts. Well, speaking of the product lines, uh, the bit of a tease to our listeners, David suggested that we do a follow-up episode with the makers yeah. of these two, and we can talk more That'd extensively fun, and right? taste more extensively yeah, other yeah. releases. So we'll look forward to that. Absolutely. That'd be a lot of fun. Speaking of tasting. So, yeah, we've got two, uh, two, two uh, expressions to taste. And um, you know, from two very different single malts. So I thought also it'd be interesting to go for two kind of ends of the age spectrum as well. So we've gone for a Glenmorangie right. 18-year-old, which actually I think does an amazing job of not becoming decrepit. It's old, but not <laughs> decrepit. Yeah. You know, We've all tasted whiskey, regardless of the age statement on the label. There are whiskeys that have just had, they've got, they're over the hill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, they've had too much time in oak or, right. or whatever. And it would have been so nice to taste them younger. Here, Glamorangie 18, I think what really, and I have to say, hands down, this is my favorite Glamorangie okay. as, a, as, as a day-to-day thing. Okay. You know, and whiskey is all about mood and place. So I may change my mind tomorrow for a while. But as a consistent <laughs> thing, I would say Glamorangie 18 is usually my favorite. For, um, for whiskey that is set in wood for 18 years, this has a very gentle nose. Yes. Absolutely. Incredibly gentle nose. Lots of tropical fruit. How on earth are we getting this elegant tropical fruit note? This this vivacious complexity of fruity notes after 18 years in oak. It's it's a, some sort of magic. It really is. It's pretty impressive. It really is. So all of the whiskey spends 15 years in American oak. Ex- Bourbon, typically? Ex-bourbon. Okay. Yeah, ex-bourbon American for 15 years, at which point at 15 years, we'll take 30, 30 out of every 100 barrels uh, of that 15-year-old and re-rack into Olorosa sherry casks for a, a three-year finish, leaving the 70 exactly where they are. So basically, when we get to 18, we have an inventory in the warehouse where 30% of the, of the barrels have had a three-year sherry finish, and 70% did all American oak all the way through. And then it's combining the two together to allow just enough sherry influence to kind of round off any Mm -hmm. potential tannic excesses from the American oak. But really, it's about letting the American oak shine um, uh, as much as we can. It really does a good job. It does a really good job of balancing the two because it's not, Mm -hmm. despite its three years, in yeah. sherry cask, it is not a sherry bomb. Absolutely not. It's great to hear because we don't want it to be about sherry. It also doesn't give me that that big corn yeah. flavor from the bourbon either. It's it's, yeah, it's it's really I love it. Totally, totally. It's really got that balance there, and just just wow. I have I've always said this is my desert, my choice. If I got stranded on a desert island and I had a whiskey genie pop up and say, you have one bottle you could keep take to the desert island. It'll be this. It's a good bottle to take. It's kind of summery too, so it'd be good on the beach. I would, yeah, I'd I be would. okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'd <right>. survive. <laughs> I have thought about choosing the Glenmorangie original because in the UK, we actually have a 4.5 litre bottle of Glenmorangie original, so I could just last me a lot longer on my desert island. But yes, I think indeed. I'd stick with the Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's more than a handle to be sure. It is. A four and a half liter bottle is a full six pack case okay. in one bottle. All right. <laughs> it's impressive. Wow. I'll <laughs> right. take one of those, please. <laughs> not not legal for sale in the United States of America, sadly. Yeah. So just give it to me. I don't <laughs> yes. Well, you know, <laughs> always apologizing for our arbitrary standards. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, no. I mean, I live here for a reason. 
It's a great place. So. I was wondering what the reason would be, but yeah, we won't get into that. <laughs> Back to the whiskey. Back to the whiskey. It begs the next whiskey. It art begs the next whiskey. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So beg five-year-old. Right. Well, let's open this bad boy. Wow. Ooh, that's so- How dare we? How dare we <laughs> release a, a whiskey so young? Um, and that's kind of the point. Is it's so smoky again? Right? Very welcoming on the nose. It, it doesn't say, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's not like Octomore, where you know you can smell it from across the room. Not that that's a bad <laughs> yeah. thing. We we love. No, it. no, no. I know what you mean, though. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we we talked about. I was kind of on the out. I I get involved in some of our whiskey creation projects. I wasn't really involved in this one at all, I have to say, but I know hearing from the guys and stuff that there there was a debate about this one when they were talking about making a young Ardbeg, you know, maybe we should make a three-year-old Ardbeg to really shock people. And I think when they looked at it, the, the end the end decision was made based on liquid quality. And it was just felt that five was where things started to settle out a little bit. Three was just too raw. And too young, so five for Ardbeg. And you know what? Um, from my experience, certainly uh, of visiting other distilleries on Isla, enjoying other distilleries' products on Isla, I think Isla is one of the places where you know, those smoky whiskies in general tend to mature really well very quickly. Right. So young Isla whiskies are often delicious. Kalila, wow, young Kalila can just be a, a thing of absolute beauty. The mouthfeel on this is extraordinary. It rolls all, all over the top. You already put it in your mouth, huh? Okay, oh, I, guess yes, I, I guess I need to do that. Okay, hold on. I, I was still smelling. <laughs> so we've used a few again, um, but here we are using the influence of some sherry, sherry butts here, but we're using a, a percentage that's been matured okay. in refill sherry butts just to give that mouthfeel, really, uh, just to get a little bit of depth. And it's, again, not to give the sense, in a similar sort of way, it's not to give the sense of a sherried whiskey, but it's just to give the whiskey a little bit more backbone, a little a little substance without, maybe the drinker might not even realize there was sherry involved here, but um, it seems to help a I little. I think I kind of taste it on my tongue, but after the finish, uh-huh. all I get is peaty iodine. <laughs> surprise it's hard bag surprise it's hard bag exactly <laughs> it would be a shock if you didn't <laughs> but uh, yeah I mean just to try and prove that Isla whiskies can be awesome young and that you know the other thing is if people are massive peat freaks um, then the very nature of the fact that the phenols will dissipate over time, over maturation time, the smokiest any spirit from Isla will ever be is the day it comes off the still. You know, you're going to want your spirit younger rather than older, you know? Oh, now see, I just took my last Mm -hmm. sip of the the Glenmorangie after that, and it gave the (laughs) Glenmorangie a really interesting flavor. I like it. I'm I'm, I'm going back. I'm following your lead. Maybe you have a career in blending. Maybe. <laughs> there you go. Ooh, yeah, I can still feel it in my mouth, even though I've had the other one since. Yeah, that's, um, you know, there's a reason why we did the Ardbeg second. Right? Yep, yep. <laughs> um, and poor old Ardbeg, if I do tastings that involve both whiskeys, um, it always ends up at the end. So, cocktails. Cocktails. Talk to us about cocktails. What are your preferred, what's your preferred category? Yeah. Stirred? Third shaken built? Well, it's kind of interesting. I, I wouldn't profess to be a massive 
cocktail expert, but I'm getting better, let's just say. And I must confess to, in my youth, being a horrible Scotch whisky snob to the point of when I ran the Scotch Malt Whisky Society bar in London for a couple of years, I point blank refused to have an ice making machine in the building in case anybody <laughs> would put ice anywhere near their glass of, of single malt and let alone make a cocktail with it. I'd have thrown you out of a window for that. You were a monster <laughs> snob. You were a wee beastie. I was. Um, some people will say I still am. <laughs> I've seen the error of my ways, I have to say. I've seen the light. And for We Beastie, you know, we actually thought long and hard uh, about how about the flavor profile of We Beastie in regards to making cocktails. And certainly the price point is, you know, pre, pre-COVID, when we were looking at the on-premise, it was at a price point that we were hoping you would, would make Ardbeg a, a lot more of a sure. commercial possibility than it was and and our u.s national ambassador cameron george who is you know mr cocktail um was part of that team that that nuanced the flavor profile of of we beastie specifically based on a range of cocktails so we have a whole range of cocktails that cameron and and a couple of his cocktail making colleagues have uh, have worked on with we beastie when it comes to cocktails for me i to be honest the one that i the one that really uh, i love with ardbeg is is a bloody mary i, Ooh, I think sure. an ardbeg bloody mary is amazing okay. wow just the, the best i'm not the biggest fan of the bloody mary but i i want to have that yeah to try that uh a last word absolutely brilliant with ardbeg what else? Uh, Glenmorangie. Yes, my wedding day cocktail. Uh-huh. Uh, currently very unpopular cocktail for some reason or other. But when it's made right, it's brilliant still, I think. But a blood and sand. Oh, yes, very much. Yeah. So um, a, kin- a Glenmorangie Quinta Ruban, our port cask finished Glenmorangie in a blood and sand made with blood orange juice uh, is just brilliant. I've been getting into making a lot of boulevardiers with Glamorangie or Ardbeg because okay. it's dead simple and has the re- re- required results. That's been a popular <laughs> a popular choice. I and think I, we've had a lot of people say Glamorangie. I've, I've always been a fan of Negronis. And in fact, a funny story, my first ever Negroni was served to me on a flight, a British Airways flight from London Heathrow to Pisa, Italy. Oh. And was you'll know immediately who this was. It was finger stirred by Gaz Regan. Gaz Regan himself. <laughs> <laughs> he was sitting next to me on the flight to Pisa uh-huh. for some trip we were on. And uh, he asked the flight attendant to make him Negronis, and she didn't know what one was. Uh, so he asked for all the components of a Negroni in mini bottles and a bunch of you know plastic cups mm-hmm. and some ice and made me, me and himself a Negroni right there and then. <laughs> you were tilting towers with Gaz Regan en route to Pisa. I was. It was a, it was a great memory, for sure. <laughs> yeah, we were talking, recent, a recent episode, we talked to Lynn House of uh-huh. the Pilbrands, and she and Gaz had a beautiful history. What a man. What a, what a loss. What a yes, man. There we go. Very much so. Yeah. On that note, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk food. Streaming, sipping, and sensory. Bourbon Women's Sip Summer Series kicks off Women's Equality Week with a three-day digital conference. August 20th through 22nd. 6 to 9.30 p.m. Enjoy a top-shelf collection of spirits education right at your fingertips. 
This first ever and distinctively curated online series will keep you sipping with fellow bourbon women this summer. You'll experience unique tastings, mixology, food pairings, and informative and engaging segments with industry experts that include live Q&A, all from the comfort of your own home. Plus, you can take part in our first ever e-auction of one-of-a-kind bourbon items and experiences. Tickets and more information available at bourbonwomen.org. And we're back. Thanks for sticking around to hear more from David Blackmore. Chef Louise is off today, so we have a special treat. David is going to talk to us about some of the recipes that he's heard about using his whiskeys. So, yeah, I mean, food and Glenmorangie and Ardbeg, you know, you might think, you know, pairing and, and combining single malt Scotch whiskeys and food, certainly still to some people surprising. So that surprises me because I've been doing it for so long. This has changed. I've worked with a bunch of chefs, you know, but it's certainly not as easy to do well as pairing with wine, I don't think. Mm-hmm. We have this lovely private country house hotel near the distillery where we have a, a really great culinary team. They've worked on a whole range of brilliant you know, food pairing suggestions. And whenever you eat at Glamorangie House, everything is, is paired beautifully with, the, with, with our whiskies. And apart from that, I've also worked over the years with a, a whole host of big name chefs on projects, you know, and I'm hopefully not going to miss any out. But, you know, we had a we actually had a brand relationship with Marcus Samuelson uh, for a couple of years. So that was a treat. Oh, wow. Yeah, I have worked with him and so has Louise on the taste. Crazy. (laughs) (laughs) A a very memorable dinner uh, launching Glenmorangie to sale which was our, our whiskey made with Maris Otto Winter Barley. And that was uh, with Dan Barber from wow. Blue Hill. That was just a, that was an amazing for me to be able to, to be standing up and talking alongside a, a guy like that was, I had to pinch myself a bit. Um, Tom Calicchio, we actually, about two nights before uh, Gaz Reagan was finger-stirring me a Negroni on the way to Italy, Gaz and I were at Tom Calicchio's place, did a, a, a launch with him, amazing menu. Done a couple of things. I did a, a Glenmorangie breakfast launch with Eric Rippert at Le Bernardin, which was... Uh, Something different, for sure, and amazing. And Pierre Garnier at Twist in Las Vegas as well. So it just it's really been really interesting to watch these chefs. I want to talk about Marcus Samuelson for just a minute because uh, we, the Center for yeah. Culinary Culture, have done some work with him in the past. Mm-hmm. And such an interesting yeah. case and, and such, a, such evidence of the, yeah. glo- the globality of whiskey. Uh, Marcus is Ethiopian by ethnicity, by birth raised by Swedish parents in Sweden and made his name opening and running a world-class American soul food joint in Harlem. And it's an amazing place. Amazing story. Just an amazing place, yeah. Yeah, and such a nice guy to work with as well. You know, very approachable. I I, I was starstruck, but um, um, but the, the, the pairing, the pairing... Every chef takes a different kind of approach to pairing with Scotch whiskey, I think. And I've seen seen a lot of, you know, certainly from these guys, they know what they're doing. They're, they're always, you know, the pairings are spectacular, for sure. Now, how would you pair these two? Yeah. 
I mean, well, let's think about Glenmorangie 18 to start with. You know, it's got—it's elegant, it's complex, it's got a bit of gravitas to it from the sherry notes. Nothing massive though. So I think meat and protein-wise, you can you can you can be pretty flexible with the 18. Anything from the sort of a gamey side of things, beef, duck, grouse, venison, lamb. I think any of these things work. Um, pork works as well. Um, so you've got a lot of things to play with there. Where you get into into the sort of fruits and vegetables, I, I, you can be much more tailored and specific. And I think uh, apricots, blackberries, figs are probably the, the sort of things I start thinking of. There's a lot of interesting things that can be done. And one of the dishes that the house, Glenmorangie House, likes to do with Glenmorangie 18, which you know would probably come towards the end of a meal, just, you know, by the nature of what we're presenting through the meal. Um, but something like a sticky toffee pudding, uh, Glenmorangie 18-year-old's butterscotch sauce and, and a, a really simple homemade vanilla ice cream. Okay, now I really want that. <laughs> right? I'm still full for breakfast and I want that. <laughs> and then on our bag, you know, it's interesting because... I don't know if we have any particular pairings set up for wee beastie, but, but Ardbeg in general, I think, strangely works really well with just fresh oysters on the half shell, um, you know? Yeah. And some people like to pour the, the Ardbeg onto the oyster. Oh, a luge. Um, a luge. To be honest, I, I'm not... I've, you know, I, I caught up in all that. I'm not so much of a fan of the luge, I've realised more recently. No. I think I like to to have the oyster and then a little sip of Ardbeg, to be honest. I think it works yeah. Well, best. it's something of a party trick, Luzhin. Yes, yeah. But, uh, yeah, oysters work well. But they also have to make sure that the salt water's out, because if yes. they put, if there's still a big bunch of salt water in it. I've had it where they've given it to me, and it's uh-huh. already, like, in a deep thing of salt water, and then they add, and I'm like, I'm not drinking a glass of <laughs> no. salt yes. water, a chunk in it. I would like to eat Absolutely. my oyster. There's also losing with a uh, beef bone that's mm. been cut, mm. cut yes. in half lengthwise. You know, after you eat the marrow, uh, you lose whiskey down the down the bone. <laughs> One of the other things that we call a clouty dumpling, and a clouty dumpling is a clouty is a cloth, and it's basically a kind of a fruit pudding boiled or steamed, wrapped tightly in in cotton cloth or something of the like, and and we stood on the shores of Loch Ugadal and had. Ugadal and a piece of fresh clouty dumpling and wow perfect for that whiskey that sherried smoky whiskey with mm. with this kind of steamed mm. fruit pudding up on the hill amazing well david thank you so much i am very excited about all the different food pairing ideas that you just gave us normally we have uh, chef louise leonard that does this segment for us but um she is on a vacation and I thank you so much for coming on the show today. And this has been a delight. Yes. Thank you so very much. Thank you for inviting me, guys. I really appreciate it. And thank you to my industry colleagues for recommending me. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, we will definitely catch up with you uh, in, a, in a couple of months. And hopefully we can talk to the uh, distillers and makers over at Ardbeg and Glen Morangie. And until then, thank you so much. Thank you. Please visit our website to see our show notes on today's podcast at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as some more information on David Blackmore. 
As always, you can see our upcoming topics and guest roster and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us. Until next time. Salon. Spirits of Whiskey is a production of First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available on Anchor, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts can be heard.